Go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to open them up this morning to Luke chapter 15 to one of the most beautiful parables, I think, in all the Bible. I tell you what, there's, uh, you always hear me say this is my favorite, right? Because I always say that my favorite study is the one I'm in. So, and the fav- my favorite people are the ones I'm with. But I'm telling you this morning, this really is a, is a favorite parable. And, and uh, I was just going through it, and I, I don't think I've ever really read through the story without, at some point, being stirred so emotionally that I just want to even break down. I, I can't think of just grasping the depth of this whole story, that parable we're going through this morning. And so let's read it together. We're chapter 15, verse 11. And he said, a man had two sons. And the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And so he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country And he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. And no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father... I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And so he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father... I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He who was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard the music and the dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate it with my friends. But when this son of yours who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to them, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. 
But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. You may be seated. When I was thinking of a, of a good message or a good title for this portion of Scripture, of course, in your Bibles, it'll say the prodigal son. That's the typical reference. But I simply called it the parable of the prodigal. Because in essence, really, that word prodigal contextually can be used to mean wasteful or imprudent or reckless. But in another context, it can be used to express extravagance or lavishness or generosity. So in this parable, you really see the son who is wasteful, he is reckless, who squanders everything that he has. But in it, you also see the lavish love and extravagant love of the father. So it could either be the parable of the son or of the father, for me, I think when you go through this study, you see that it's probably better to look at the parable of the, of the prodigal father. And so it's, we're looking at this, in truth, it's a parable about two sons and the response that both of these sons have to the benevolence of their father. Both the sons have important lessons to learn. They both have things they need to figure out. And the father is the key to everything that they learn. They both find themselves in a place of distance from the father but only one has actually made his way away from the Father. So here today and next week, we're gonna really pull out the riches of the parable, looking at both the sons and of the Father and kind of looking at the lessons that we can learn here. Now chapter 14, we saw this in context, that Jesus had clearly laid out the radical terms of discipleship. He had clearly told them what it meant to be one of his followers, and we went through that these past couple of weeks, laying out the conditions, you know, must deny yourself, take up your cross, um, you know, must love him before any other relationship, you must give up all your possessions, Jesus says, and he, conclu he concluded that section with, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, when Jesus says that, and you read that in Scripture, he's not talking about those who have ears physically and those who can hear physically, but he's talking about those who have spiritual understanding, those who can understand the message of what he's saying. What I always pray for you on a Sunday morning and anytime any of us go through the Word of God is that he gives you understanding. Not that you can simply hear the words that are being taught, but somewhere the Holy Spirit is communicating to you with understanding a message that you need to hear. So we saw that while there were many on that who had listened to Jesus with his words of discipleship, there were some who didn't understand, and there were many who probably walked away that day, but there was still a group of others who drew all the closer to Jesus. Who are they? Well, that's given to us in verse 1 here, chapter 15. Look at that with me. It says, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, this sets the context for the whole chapter. Even after Jesus has this radical discourse on what it means to be a disciple, we see here that the tax collectors and the sinners draw all the nearer to him, which of course, when the Pharisees and the scribes see this, it only infuriates them all the more towards Jesus. They're all the more repelled by him. 
You see, the religious leaders had a whole list of offenses against Jesus. But perhaps one of the things that impacted them the most was whom he chose to associate with. That he would willingly, that he would purposely associate with sinners and tax collectors, that he would bring them into his company, and then he would willfully choose to eat with them because in that culture, when you ate with someone, you're actually considered becoming one with them. It's an act of communion, of fellowship. So when the self-righteous religious leaders who are supposed to be the shepherds of Israel They worked real hard at keeping a distance from anything that might defile themselves. You see, they saw Jews and Gentiles in a different way. They considered all Gentiles as unclean. But when they saw a Jew who willfully chooses to live their life apart from the law of God, it just caused them all the more to be odious in their sight. That's when the religious leaders see Jesus receiving and eating with sinners and tax collectors They are so offended, they're angered, and their response to the criticism, Jesus comes back to them and he gives them these series of three parables here in this chapter. They have the first parable, the parable of lost sheep, one in 100. You have the parable of the lost coin, one in 10. And then finally we come to this last parable, the lost son, where you have one of two sons, which makes its way away. Now we covered the first two parables last week, but in short, In the parable of the lost sheep, we saw that a shepherd had a flock of 100, and he discovered that he lost, or one of his sheep was missing, and so with urgency, he leaves the 99, no doubt in good care. He goes out and searches and searches and searches until he finds that one sheep, and when he finds it, he picks it up, he throws it over his shoulder, and he carries it back to the flock in safety, where he can find blessing, where he can find food, And it says he comes back rejoicing and he is so thrilled by his find that he calls all of his neighbors and his friends and says, come on and join with me. Let's feast together. Let's let's enjoy this. We saw then the parable of lost coin that when the woman looks and she discovers that one of her 10 coins is lost, perhaps they believe it's like a wedding band that's given to her, has 10 coins, but one of them is missing. She is so stirred by it that she immediately sets off to go and find that one coin. No other coin would do. It was that coin. It wasn't a matter of the money. This had emotional meaning for her. She searches and searches. She looks under every nook and cranny until she finds it. When she finds it, she is so filled with joy. She calls all her neighbors, all her friends together and says, come join with me for what was lost is now found. Now, in both of those parables we saw that the key point of them is defined for the lost sheep. In verse seven, it says, Jesus says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In the parable of lost coin, Jesus says in the same way, I tell you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Both of those Those parables feature the joy of heaven when just one sinner repents and turns to God in faith and discovers the forgiveness and life that he offers. Yes, Jesus purposely seeks out those who are lost. Yeah, he would go after the tax collectors and the sinners, not because he seeks to bring them comfort in their sin. No, 
He goes to them so that he can bring them back to the forgiveness and safety and blessing that is theirs in the kingdom of God. See, God sent Jesus to save sinners. So when we come to this third parable, we find that this message is very much similar to the first two, but it also is unique. And it is far more personal. And the other two parables, if they couldn't resonate with you, perhaps this one will. You see, in the first two parables, a sheep strays away, maybe out of ignorance, maybe out of carelessness, but he loses his way. And he, he's, he's sought for, and he, they go to look for him. And the woman we find in the second parable, she may have lost her coin out of neglect or maybe out of just an accident. However, in this third parable, we are told the story of a willful, rebellious son who consciously, willfully chooses to go astray. He chooses to lose himself. He chooses to get lost. As we see in the parable, the father, unlike the shepherd or the woman, doesn't go out and search for the son, no. He sits and he waits patiently and prayerfully for the son to return. So when you look at the parable, this is how it goes. He said, verse 11, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to the father, father, give me the share of the estate that falls on me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went off on a journey to a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. So when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. And so he went and hired himself to one of the citizens of that country and he sent him into the field to feed, to feed the swine and he would gladly fill his, his stomach with the pods of that swine were eating and, and no one was giving him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hands have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up, go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Now, as you see in this parable, there's actually three stories in one. But the key point of the story is actually going to be toward the father. In the parable, it's the father who is wealthy. We know he's wealthy, he has servants, he has a great estate, and these two sons that are both dear to his heart. However, in the parable we see here that one day the younger son comes to his father and he asks him for his share of his inheritance while he is yet young. Now, in the Hebrew culture, like much today, inheritance are typically passed on after you die. However, it was a prerogative of a father that should he choose in certain conditions to give the estate to his children, he could do so and give the responsibility of, this, of his estate over to his children. So according to the law of Moses, the firstborn son was to be given two-thirds or, or the, the greater portion of the double portion of the inheritance. So here in the parable comes a younger son who comes to his father and he asks him for his inheritance ahead of time, which would have been one third of the estate. Why does he want it? Because he wants to go and spend it while he's still young enough to enjoy it. After all, pretty soon he's gonna be over the age of 30. And man, it's gonna be rough. You never enjoy things over 30. And so the son comes and he asks his father for his inheritance. And really, if you look at it, this is such an act of disrespect for his father. I mean, this is a slap in the face. 
You could almost interpret this as saying, I wish you were dead, Dad. I don't have time to wait for you to die. I want to get my stuff now while the going's good. And though it must have been grievous for the father, he agrees to the son's request. And he portions out to him that, that portion of his estate that, that he so desires. And we learned here that not many days the younger son gathers everything. Everything. He packs it all up. And he goes out to find the greener pasture. He's a free man now, you see. He's now free to go and do what he wants to do. He's been liberated. He's got everything. He's going to go find himself. He's going to discover the joys of the world. And he's going to be his own boss. No one's going to tell him what to do. He's now got charge. He leaves the father. He leaves his home. He leaves the blessings of safety. And he wanders off to this far off country, far away from the life he knows. And what's implied here is that he actually makes it to the place of the Gentiles. That's confirmed by the fact that he ends up feeding pigs, which were strictly forbidden by the Jewish law to either eat or to sacrifice. And the son at this point thinks he's got it all, man. He's got it all. He's got the dough. He's living it up. He's, he's free to go and do what he wants to do, when he wants to do it, how he wants to do it, live to do anything he wants to do. And after all, he knows everything anyway. He doesn't need anybody else to teach him anything. Life is meant for living, and so living it up, he does. And here in this one verse, it simply says what he does is he squanders, he wastes, he lavishly spent all of his estate on loose living. I mean, he's the partier of partiers. He's the joy of the party. He plays and he plays with reckless abandon. No doubt, for a season of time, he is the life of the party. Everybody wants him around. Being a man of great resources, he's attracted new friends. The women love him. And he loves the women. The guys love him because he's so much fun. And all this continues on until, until he uses it all up. And he finds his pockets empty. He finds himself broke and impoverished, penniless, bankrupt. And then to add insult to injury, something else happened that he never thought of. In that same land where he had been living, where he had squandered all of his fortune, there happened to be a famine that came through the land which would have been threatening to everyone in the land. And so he finds himself alone. He's broke, homeless, penniless, destitute, hungry, starving, living off, and no one's there to care for him. No one's there to love him. No doubt all of his friends have little use for him anymore. His popularity has gone by the wayside. After all, who needs somebody to, you want to hang around who's so needy? It's funny how when you're so needy, people don't want you around anymore. They would just soon let you go. So this is where he's at. Now the issue for him isn't just a matter of living, it's a matter of survival. It's not just about living it up, it's just about living one more day 
And so he finds a job as a day worker and he goes for one of the local farmers who sends him out with this great opportunity that he's for sure been looking for his whole life. He gets to feed the pigs. And as a Jew, he had never been around pigs before. In fact, he learned real fast why they're considered unclean, why they're considered not kosher to the Jewish diet. He learned the whole thing. You see, pigs are dirty. They're disgusting. They love to wallow in the mud. They eat things, disgusting things. They don't care. They just, whatever they can get, you just slop them with it and they're gall for it. And so as, as a Jew, he's never seen these poor, but it gets so bad and he gets so hungry that he's even entertained by the food that the pigs eat. This is how low he's gotten. Again, this is the picture of the son. He finds himself broke, bankrupt, alone, dirty, homeless, helpless, living like a pig among pigs. But verse 17, but when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. Notice it says he comes to his senses, and New King James says he came to himself. In other words, his mind is shifted. He's reasonable. For a time, he had lost himself. For a time, he had lost his senses, for that is the deceit of sin. It allures you, it attracts, it distracts, it lies to you until you lose your senses. When you see people given over into sin, you see people who have lost their senses. They've lost it all because sin makes you see the world incorrectly and makes you see yourself erroneously. It makes you see your relationships distortedly. It makes you even see God unfavorably. Sin, we know this, it's fun for a season. There's a pleasure, there's a joy in it. Many of us have been there. You're, you're partying and you love it. It's like it's never gonna end, but ultimately payday comes. And when he came to his senses, he saw where this path had led him. And he realized that he was living with pigs and that he was willing to eat like pigs. But he thought about it and realized he wasn't a pig. He realized he's been the fool's fool. That he had finally come to the bottom and he's forced to look up. And when he comes to his senses, we see her, he finds himself a bit homesick. He begins to think about home and think about his father and begin to think how good his father was even to his servants that even the servants at home were cared for and better fed than he had ever known here. He thought of his bed. He thought of the love and the protection. But how could he return? Had he burned all of his bridges? Surely he had left his father hurt. He understood the damage he had done, that he had no right to ever go and ask for anything from his father, for he squandered his rights as his son away. Regardless, he knows this. If he goes to his father, he knows one thing about him. He's a good man. He knows enough to know that he's merciful. 
And that if he goes and he simply humbles himself before his father and returns to him and he asks for his mercy, he knows that he doesn't deserve to be his son anymore, but at least maybe his dad would give him a job as one of the servants. So he prepares this speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven, and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And I think all the way as he's making his way home, he's going over that speech over and over and over again. This is what I'm going to say. Father, I have sinned against heaven. I have sinned against you. I was wrong. I was wrong. And I think he went over it again and again and again and again and again until he got it down. But notice in his request here that he has it prepared that when he comes to his father, he'll say, make me a servant. He goes from father, give me, in verse 12, to father, make me a servant. It's a good thing when you go from give me to make me. And so he gets up in verse 20, goes to his father, but while he's a long way off, it says his father sees him and he has compassion for him. And the son says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Here's the speech. And the father says to the slave, quickly, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put on the ring, hand, sandals, and his feet. Slaughter the fatted calf, and let's celebrate. But this son of mine, which is lost, is now found. And they began to celebrate. I noticed the reaction of the father to the return of the son is really the whole point of the story. Don't get confused. This story is not about necessarily the son and his sin. This is about the father and his love for the son. See, while he's a long way off, it says the father looks out and he sees his son coming, which means this. It means his father had been looking. He had been watching. He had been waiting for this day to come. Every day he'd been looking out on the horizon. Every day he's thinking, maybe today I'll see him come. No doubt this father had suffered greatly over the absence of his son. No doubt he had been tremendously hurt. He was aching. He had been stung. He was wondering, wondering and wondering how many times that he thought, I wonder what he's doing now. I wonder where he is now. I wonder what, I wonder if he's still alive. I wonder if he's still, he's thinking all these things. He loves his son. And many of you parents that are here today, you know this because this is a love you have for your children. Or maybe you've been the prodigal. But this is the love that you have. Your eyes on the horizon, you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting and say, oh Lord, just bring them home, bring them home. We do our week of prayer couple times a year, and we know one night we devote to praying for our families, and there's no greater night of emotional stir than that night. Why? Because we're praying for lost ones, people that we love that are lost, and it hurts so bad. And I know most of you really understand what this father has felt. And yeah, the father knows his son has been playing the fool. You see, when he looks out and he sees his son coming off in a distance, does he think, well, now my son's back and it's my turn to get my pound of flesh? A lot of us would think maybe I should make him grovel in the dust and maybe I should 
rub his face and his failure. Perhaps like a lot of us, he's thinking to himself, or he might think to himself, so now, now you come home. Now you think home's not so bad. Now after you've squandered everything, you go out and lose everything, and you come waltzing back into this home thinking somehow I'm going to go, oh boy, you always were a loser. You always were a fool. Is this how the father reacts in the story? No. It says when the father sees his son coming from afar off, he felt compassion for him. This is what I think. I think as the father's looking out, and this is the image I see, that he sees his son way out there in the distance, but he notices that his son is not strutting in pride. Rather, he's walking with a limp in humility. I think he could see that his clothes were torn and they were tattered and that he was dirty. I think he could see that he was haggard and worn out because he felt compassion for his son. And this scene here is perhaps the most beautiful that even though it's unusual, it would be considered undignified for a man of his age to run. The father gets up and he runs and runs until he gets to his son. And he throws his arms around him and he begins to kiss him and kiss him and kiss him and kiss him. And immediately the boy who hadn't expected such a display of welcome or reaction, he begins to offer up his speech. Oh, Father, you know, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father cuts him off. He doesn't even let him finish his speech. Instead, the father looks to the servants and he calls out to them and says, quickly, I want you to go right now. I want you to find the finest robe that we have and I want you to clothe them with it. A robe reserved for a guest of honor. I want you to put a ring on his hand signifying his place as a son and I want you to put sandals on his feet for only the slaves were barefooted and I want you to slaughter the fatted calf one prepared for a great and special feast like this. Why? He says, for this son of mine was dead, has come to life again. He was lost. He's been found. And they began to celebrate. The lost son is found. He was dead. And he's made alive. The father is saying to the son, today you're restored. You're reconciled to your place of belonging. Let's eat, let's celebrate. And this is the whole point of Jesus, I believe, in the whole story. To demonstrate the heart of God for those who are lost. But this is the heart of God understood by the psalmist. I love Psalm 103. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on his children for those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed and he knows that we're dust. 
There's the heart of the Father. And the emphasis of the parable is centered on the graciousness of the Father more than it is the sinfulness of the Son, because that is the whole point of the gospel. It's looking to the God and what he's done for us, not what we do for him. You see, this is the point Jesus is making in the hearing of the religious leaders who resented him so much for his associations with sinners and tax collectors. Unlike the shepherd and the woman who previous parables, the father doesn't go out and search for the son. No, no, he knows the folly of free will and he knows all about that. So he waits patiently and he watches. And ultimately, it's the memory of the son for his father's goodness that brings him to that place of humility, repentance, and forgiveness by which he finds reconciliation with his father. Warren Wiersbe draws this parallel of the prodigals coming home to John's, or Jesus' statement in John 14 that he was lost, and Jesus says, I am the way. He was ignorant. Jesus says, I am the truth. He, he was dead, and Jesus says, I am the life. The son had to reach the bottom before he would look up. And sometimes God lets us go for our foolery until we finally begin to look. You see Psalm 119, 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. That's why so often when we're praying for people that are lost, why so often when we look at them, we're praying for loved ones, we can see, well, things getting worse for them instead of better. Oh, Lord, I'm praying for them. Look what's happening to them. It doesn't seem right. Oh, but you don't know the plan of God. Some of you prodigals out there are looking at me because you know exactly what this is. That he loved you enough to let you go out and learn the lesson well. You know, tragically, a lot of us just have to learn things the hard way. I know I had to learn things the hard way. But you know what the wonderful thing is? By his grace, I'm learning. I haven't learned it all yet, but I'm still learning. You see, this story of the prodigal son really resonates because it's such a common story told over and over and over again. Perhaps many of you in this room, this is your story. You were fools once and you were silly and you squandered every good thing that you had and you let it go. You were deceived, you were stupid, and you had lost your senses. Ephesians 2, 3 says, among them we too formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Sadly, not everyone 
comes to the conclusion of the prodigal son. There's some who remain in the pig pen. There's some who continue to wallow in the mud. They learn how to adapt to the diet of pigs. They just learn how to live that way, and they would rather live that way than humble themselves and return home. But there is such a joy to the Father when the sinner repents and humbles themselves and reconciles themselves to his love. And this is the story and the truth found in the gospel. You see, it makes you face the truth about yourself. And when you're sharing the gospel, that's what you want to do. You want to make sure that people know you're lost. You can't earn your way to God. There's nothing you can do. That's the bad news. They got to know the bad news before they can know the good news. And the good news brings you to the truth about God, that he is a God of love and of mercy and of grace. And if you just repent and turn to him, there is a joy of being reconciled. John 1.11, he came to his own. To those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name. This is what the self-righteous leaders couldn't understand. This is what self-righteous people will never understand. As they look to themselves, they look to their own works. For them, everything is about rules and regulations, but God is seeking relationship. And he's looking for restoration and reconciliation. Ephesians 1, 7 says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. Do you know God that way? Do you really see God that way? As I said, I'm learning I'm learning. The more I learn about him and his love for me, the more I want and desire him. The more I don't want to sin. You see, that's what grace does in your life. When you receive that love, all of a sudden you think, you know what, I don't want to live this way anymore. Not because it's a bunch of rules. No, but simply because I love him. And it makes me say no to sin and yes to Christ. Let me ask you, have you come to your senses? If you're watching with us today, have you come to your senses? You're thinking straight. Can you see straight? Do you understand that no matter what goes on in the world today, no matter what comes against us as believers, that we have the love of a father, that we are loved by him, that we're his children, and no matter what he will be with us? I mean, do you see that? Do you understand it? You need to understand it. I don't know what the future holds for our country, it looks pretty scary. 
I don't know what the future holds for the church in this country, especially those who hold to the word of God. I think we got some very, very, very challenging days ahead of us. But you know what? If I didn't know this, I think I would be afraid. But I do know this, that we are loved by a father who watches over his children. And no matter what challenge we may have to face, he will be with us as he has always been with his people. It's a story of history. It's a story of history. Believers have gone through difficult times. But our hope is not in this world. It's in our relationship with God through Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, if you're watching and you don't know Jesus, I pray, I pray you come today that you understand his arms are wide open to you. That's the thing that's gotta be communicated. He's not there there to rub your face in your sin. Yeah, you've been a fool, but he's there to receive you and bring you to himself. Let's pray. Father, this morning we just thank you. Overwhelmed by your love, overwhelmed by your grace, Lord, how I pray for every one of us here, Lord. There's some things, God, you want us to learn and learn so well. But Lord, just the reassurance, God, that, that understanding, Lord, that you love us even when we mess up. You love us. And that, Lord, just with repentance, Father, we can come right back. Lord, I'm so grateful for the love that you've shown me. And I know, Lord, the many in this room right now would say, yes, God, I'm thankful, Lord, for your patience with me. I'm thankful for your graciousness with me. But, Lord, there's some people today who don't understand it. And they need to learn it. Lord, as you wean us away from this world and the things of this world, Lord, I pray that you... Draw us deeper, Lord, to a love and a passion for you. Lord, our hope, Lord, is not in this world or the things of this world. Lord, it's completely in you and the promises you have for us as your children. So today, Lord, we would say as children, we're glad that you're our father. And we pray today so desperately, Lord, for those who are lost. And if you're a parent here this morning and you have one who is lost, or you have a sibling you know that's lost and wandering, I want you to just pause for just a minute, wherever you are, and just pray for them. And just ask God to reach out and some way bring them to their senses that they might return to the love and the grace, Lord, that you so freely offer.
Lord, I pray for anyone who's watching, anyone who's here. God, maybe they've been the prodigal and this is where they are today. Lord, they woke up in the pig pen. But Lord, somewhere in the day, Lord, you're communicating to them, Lord, that you still love them. You still have a home for them. As we're worshiping here at the end, here that we have people up here to pray with you on both sides. If you have any need for prayer, maybe today you want to just settle it between you and the Lord and you just need somebody to stand with you, they're here to do that with you and for you to know that God's there, no matter what your need is. But let's just worship. <laughs>